38. Welcome back to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. Uh, my name is Keith, and this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and to see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. All right. So, man, we're still in the thick of these night visions. So remember last time we talked about the book of Zechariah, the people have come back into the land and Zechariah is trying to encourage the people to rebuild the temple and he gives them these visions to help them make sense of their current reality and the future that is to come, right? And so here, yeah, we still in the on the uh, in the thick of these visions, man. And they're still kind of, yeah, just need some context. Can be hard to understand. So basically, in Zechariah five, we get vision six. So there's eight visions. We're in vision six, and we have this flying scroll, right? And this scroll represents God's law. Right. And the text even explicitly says that it is the curse that is going out over the whole land. And it is against the thieves and those who swear falsely. All the text is getting at is the idea that all of Israel, all of Israel needs to be cleansed specifically from the social. Listen, the social injustices and sins that they have been guilty of and which scripture says has broken God's covenant. Right. And the thing that, you know, God is trying to say here is that, yo, sin must be dealt with before God can dwell with his people. Right. Sin must be dealt with uh, dealt with before God can dwell with his people. Vision seven. Um, you know, there's this woman sitting in a basket. Right. So this symbolism uh, is rep- representing the centuries of rebellion that Israel has been guilty of before God. And it mentions her being carried off to the land of Shinar. Now, if you know anything about biblical history, you know, the land of Shinar is actually Babylon. Right. And he talks about the fact that when the woman gets there to Babylon, she will worship at a shrine. Right. All the text is saying here in vision seven is that the concept Um, you know, that is pervasive throughout the Old Testament is this concept of idolatry, right? And the woman going off is showing that idolatry belongs in the land of Babylon, not in the land of Jerusalem. Remember, God all throughout this book so far has been talking about, yo, I'm going to come dwell with my people. I'm going to rebuild the city. I'm going to come and rebuild uh, the community and it will be a place of blessing forever. And God is saying that stuff has no place here, right? Um, and basically what God is trying to show throughout this vision is like, yo, if y'all still on that foolishness right now, I brought y'all back from exile. If y'all are still on the idolat- idolatrous foolishness, it will happen again, right? This is the place where that stuff belongs and you could end up having the same fate as before. Vision eight. Basically, you have vision one and vision eight that form a literary uh, device called an inclusio, right? So basically an inclusio is when the front or the beginning of something and the end of something parallel and match significantly showing that the middle, right? Uh, that everything in the middle, um, should be read in light of those two. So, right. So vision one and vision eight are paradigmatic for understanding all of the visions. And, you know, Basically, vision eight is just going to talk about God's sovereignty, right? It's a word we we often use. God's sovereignty just means his utter control over all things that take place. And so you have in vision eight, these four chariots coming through, some going north and some going south, and they are patrolling the earth. And the text literally says, my spirit is sending them, Um, you know, and God here is just basically saying, you know, through the work of his spirit, 
it will mediate his presence over the earth and destroy his enemies in the process, right? That's all the vision is saying. And, you know, God is just ultimately trying to tell his people, listen, listen, I am in utter control, regardless of what things look like, regardless of how things seem. I know the city doesn't look great, but I am in control. Furthermore, the back half of Zechariah uh, 6 um, verses 9 to 15 is basically the climax of this entire section. So we have all the visions and, you know, he's going to summon Joshua, right, as as the one we spoke about before. And he says he is the branch. Right. And here he actually puts a crown on him and he says he will serve basically as a foreshadowing of the future messianic king that is to come. Right. And he speaks about the branch that is to come. Right. That will build God's temple himself. So in other words, Joshua here is building God's temple, leading the people in building God's temple. But this branch, this king from the line of David, who also is like Joshua in that he was a priest, is going to build God's house. He's going to build God's temple. Right. And see, as I said before, this idea of kingship and priesthood are merging here. Right. So in the Old Testament, those were two separate offices and God is giving hints, right? He's giving clues to what he's going to do. And this is going to culminate in Christ. Now, one of the interesting things is this, um, you know, the Hebrew name for Jesus is Yeshua, right? And the name of Joshua in Hebrew, in Hebrew is Yehoshua, right? So there's this even semantic relationship between the names of God's son, Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah and this Joshua figure here, who points forward to uh, God's son. And again, God is just wetting their appetites for uh, Christ who is to come. And what we see here is at the end of this text in, in chapter six, there's this conditional element where God is like, yo, I'm going to restore, man. But it's also conditional, right? He says, yo, like if you, it is based, if you obey me, this will definitely come to pass. So in chapter seven, we have a shift in the narrative. Something interesting happens. Basically, the folks who were at Bethel, remember Bethel was this ancient worship site um, where other Israelites in the northern tribes worshiped before the exile. And some of them who weren't actually taken off. So remember, not every single Israelite was taken off into exile. Some of them who stayed back, right, come to the Israelites who return back to Jerusalem to seek God's favor. And, you know, we have to remember that, you know, they stayed and they come and they're like, Man, you know, every fifth and seventh month for 70 years, right? For 70 years, we fasted and we mourned, right? And they come to the Israelites in uh, in Jerusalem and ask, basically, yeah, should we continue, right? Should we keep on with this ritual because God took you guys into Babylon and we fasted and mourned for every fifth and seventh month. We made it a like ritual and, you know, they ask, should we continue? Now, it's interesting that the Lord responds through Zechariah with another question, right? He essentially asks them in return, when you fasted for 70 years, this is an entire generation. Was that really for me? Right. Or was that for yourselves? In other words, was it really out of a concern for the loss of my favor? And if you stop doing it. Does that mean an abandonment of that concern and favor? In other words, what God is trying to say here is that he wants true 
whenever we've sinned or done something rebellious towards the Lord, he wants sincere penitence over posturing, right? He wants sincere repentance over just a mere outward ritual posturing. I remember my mother used to say growing up, don't cry because you got caught, right? Cry because you really are sorry, right? Like, don't just do it because, no, like, man, I don't want the consequences, but because you've really hurt someone you love. And see, we see here, once again, all throughout the scriptures, repentance is about the heart, right? Repentance is about the heart. And he's going to say this. The Lord of Army says this. Make fair decisions. Show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor. And do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. In other words, the word of the Lord, he's saying, don't do this, right? And this is the, he said, this is the same thing I said back then before I sent your ancestors into exile. Like, fam, like I've been saying the same thing and they rejected the prophets. And guess what? My word ain't changed. So you want to know what you want to do? Yes, you should stop doing the festival. But listen. Yo, like, just just care, love your neighbor. Love me and love your neighbor, essentially, right? And he's like, man, the word of God ain't changed, right? From the Torah to the prophets to, uh, you know, the time of Jesus to the epistles to the early church. Like, the word of God has not changed. He still requires the same things from us today. And in Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, he tells us, right? And so God says this. And then chapter eight comes through, you know, with God constantly reaffirming. He ends off this section reaffirming that he will bring his presence to his people. Right. That those days that the Israelites used to mourn on the fifth and seventh month will now be days of celebration. Right. He has the power and is willing. Listen, God has the power and is willing in our lives to take symbols and artifacts of grief and turn them into gladness right so god is saying yo those days that y'all used to mourn now they will be one of joy and celebration and god is speaking here of the way in which he will dwell with his people he does this listen he does this he fulfills his promise right he does this in the incarnation christ comes to earth dwells puts on human flesh and he dwells with his people the messiah comes but boy what God is saying here is that this is ultimate, right? This is not just last things, eschatology, but this is ultimate things, right? The end of the universe will be God dealing with his people. And we see this covenantal principle that runs throughout the entire Bible. If you could sum up the entire Bible in a sentence, it would say this. I will be their people and they or they will be my people and I will be their God. This will be a place of peace. He's going to say, yo, old folk and young folk going to kick it together on us at the same table on the same street. Um, you know, and then I love it so much. He says that towards the end in uh, actually in verse six, he says this. The Lord of Army says this, though it may seem impossible to the remnant of this people in those days. Should it also seem impossible to me? This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. In other words, such a word. He's like, man, listen, I know it may seem unlikely and impossible to some of you. I know that some of y'all are skeptical of what I am saying right now. Right. He's like, listen, y'all look around at how uninhabited Jerusalem is and how much little progress you've made in building this temple, right? And in our day, it's the same thing. Like, we we hear you, God. Like, we hear you making these promises, but it's like, 
I've made such little progress in the Christian life. We've made such little progress in America in terms of dealing with racism and injustice. There's no, I, I don't see how the kingdom is coming. It doesn't seem like it, right? But God's word, again, we believe God's word and our faith has priority over the things we see with our eyes. Listen, the promise of God that he is coming to dwell with his people is continually unfolding and it will happen. Why? Because in a sense, it did happen. Jesus came to dwell among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter one. And he's coming back again to dwell with us forever. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray that um, even though, you know, our surroundings don't uh, match your words, God, we pray that we will believe your words more than 